0: Israel is the world's only Jewish majority state and the only surviving and thriving Jewish community that remains in the Middle East. Despite that, or maybe because of that, Israel has many enemies. You may think you know how this unique nation-state was born, but history, like science, is never settled. Jeffrey Herf, a distinguished university professor of modern European history at the University of Maryland, has cast a fresh and scholarly eye on Israel's origins, and turned his research into a new book, Israel's Moment: International Support for and Opposition to Establishing the Jewish State, 1945 to 1949. He's in studio with us today. Also with us is John Schanzer, FDD's senior vice president. John reviewed Professor Herf's book for the Jerusalem Post. You're not in our studio, but I know you're with us too here on Foreign Policy. Welcome, Jeff. You're looking very well. A full disclosure, Danielle, our producer, is also with us. Good thing, too, because I don't know how to run anything but my mouth. So, Jeff, John, and Danielle and I are are familiar with your work, and we've been acquainted with you for a long time, but others in this virtual room may be just meeting you. So, just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what inspired you to write this book, which is a bit far from the subjects you've mostly focused on
1: eh, over your long career. Well, good afternoon, Cliff, and thank you for having me. Uh, I am a historian of modern European history, and, uh, I have published a number of books, especially on 20th century Germany, uh, from the Weimar Republic through the Nazi era and the World War II and the Cold War. And, uh, the, in 1997, I published a book called Divided Memory, uh, and, uh, half of that book was about, uh, the, um, well, actually, a lot of the book was uh, about the beginnings of uh, German policy towards Israel and the Middle East. And uh, I learned then, uh, or learned more then, uh, about um, the political coordinates of support and opposition to Zionism in the 1940s. And so my interest began then, and then I worked more on, I wrote several books about Nazi propaganda in Germany and toward the Arab world. And uh, learned that uh, Nazi Germany's Arabic language propaganda during World War II was extensive, and uh, uh, that there was extensive collaboration with the Nazis on the part of Arab leaders who subsequently assumed leadership positions uh, in the history of Palestinian nationalism.
0: Yeah, post World War II, the, those the Nazi collaborators, nonetheless, were they were not denazified, they were they became they had leadership positions in the Arab world. That's an important point I want to stress.
1: Yes. I mean, the most prominent was Hajim al-Husseini, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, but his uh, relative Jamal Husseini was also uh, the leader of the uh, Arab Higher Committee of the United Nations. So I, I had, uh, as a historian of Germany, I was interested in these issues. And uh, after 9-11, and uh, then uh, as the Iranian nuclear program advanced, uh, as a historian of the Holocaust, in part, I became more and more preoccupied with uh Preventing a second Holocaust, and uh, so my interest in matters in the Middle East and iran and and, and the uh, and the work of the excellent work of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies was um, peaked and uh, deepened uh, and then on campus as a professor at the University of Maryland College Park uh, and a member of the American Historical Association, uh, I saw up close and participated in the debates and uh, uh, I think battles as too uh, Uh, hyperbolic term, but arguments um, about uh, a foreign against boycott in the state of Israel. And uh, uh, the the antagonism to Israel on campuses became uh, considerable and uh, uh, much of it assumed that Israel was a product or asserted that Israel was a product of U.S. imperialism and was a racist state and an apartheid state. So the more I heard about this, the more I uh, I, I thought back about the work that I had done in the 1990s, and that I should go back and and revisit those issues. And uh, I'm very fortunate to be at the University of Maryland College Park because my office is a mile from the United States National Archives, and uh, in College Park. And those archives uh, contain the records of the executive branch of the United States government, uh, State Department, the Pentagon, Central Intelligence Agency, the Department of Justice. Uh, and, uh, I've worked in those archives of often in the last 20 years. Uh, there's a great deal on Europe and German history there. Uh, but this time I decided to write a book that was not about Germany. There was no German government, uh, in 1945 to 49 because the Allies were occupying it. Uh, but the files, the, what I call the Palestine files in the State Department are massive. And uh, there have been a number of good books, uh, uh about those years. But I still thought that um, there was more to do. And the more that I plunged into the archives of the State Department and the United Nations in New York, and also the files of the French Foreign and Interior Ministries, we can talk about that later, I realized that there were some new and important things to say um, about the international context in which the Jewish state was established.
0: Yeah, no. There's a bunch of things I want to come back to there, and just I don't know this. What what part of the country are you
1: from originally? I am from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and the the, there are a number of prominent people from Wisconsin. Uh, uh, Vince Lombardi, briefly, but uh, uh, more seriously, uh, uh, George Kennan was also born in Milwaukee, and uh, Kennan emerged as a central figure in the State Department's discussions of Israel. I met Mr. Kennan. at uh, at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton when I was there in 1994-95 and the great man could not have been more gracious uh, And uh, when I was working on uh, the anti-cosmopolitan purges in the Soviet bloc and I think subsequently he became friends with uh, great scholar of Islam Bernard Lewis Yes I mean, who we who we actually knew quite quite well and yeah. work with him in some ways a so wonderful man wonderful. I think Kennan was 101 when he died and uh, the um some people get wiser as they get older and uh, the, not everybody uh, not everybody no no but uh, but Kennan uh, and Lewis became friends and uh,
0: though and, uh, and we may get back to this too Kennan and Lewis did out of the same views on Israel
1: by the 1980s uh uh, the the paperback edition of Bernard Lewis's Semites and Anti-Semites has a blurb on the back cover by George Kennan uh, okay. about what a superb book it is.
0: Interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, John, you read the book and reviewed it quite well for the Jerusalem Post. I read that before I dove, dove into the book because it's kind of a – maybe this will be helpful. Well, then I'm going to cherry pick from the book. But maybe talk a little bit about the gestalt, about what, the, what this book is is about and what you thought about it.
2: Sure. Thanks, Cliff. And, and Jeff, congratulations on the book. Um, as I think uh, you noted from my review, I, th- I thought it was excellent. I mean, I, I think to probably sum it up, it was – at least for me, it felt like I was um, experiencing the bizarro world uh, almost of, of what we see now. Uh, where you have um, opinion pieces and articles appearing in The Nation and The New York Times um, in support of the state of Israel. You've got Democrats um, that are out there. I mean, they're, they are tirelessly campaigning uh, for the establishment of the Jewish state. And of course, you compare that to the sorts of folks that we see now from the squad, and it's quite uh, a gap between them. Of course, there are they're obviously pro-Israel Democrats as well. But, uh, you know, I think we we can certainly see a trend looking at the role of the Russians, then the Soviet Union, in advocating for the Jewish state. Um, I certainly can't see Putin uh, being Israel's greatest champion today. And even the role of the French, I mean, you mentioned that briefly, but the role of the interior ministry. Uh, in France was actually somewhat surprising. Certainly, now when you look at the French government, they're not exactly um, waving the Israeli flag. So it was a bit of a um, of a bizarro world, if you will. And uh, but really, a fascinating exploration and a terrific book.
1: Well, thank you, thank you. Uh, the uh, I had inklings, of co- uh, because of the work I had done earlier that this would be the case. But uh, but uh, uh, I, I learned things as in working on the book uh, as well and uh uh Andre the Soviet representative of the United Nations, gave a very famous speech on may fourteenth nineteen forty seven in support of the partition resolution and that's very famous and anybody who knows anything really about those years is familiar with the Gromyko speech. What I did not know as well was that from then from may of forty seven to the spring of forty nine uh the soviet union poland Stalinist, Czechoslovakia, the Soviet bloc uh, was, in, was emphatic at the United Nations uh, in supporting the Israeli diplomatic positions. And you had this uh, very very uh, in, in, and to you know echo what you just said, the very very uh, peculiar, uh, from contemporary perspective, alignment in which you would have uh, Andrei Gromyko or Vasil Tarasenko, the Ukrainian representative on the Security Council, making arguments that were reinforced by Abba Eban and Moshe Sherat, the Israeli
2: representatives. And ironically, yeah. though, it's, it's exactly those exhortations that are making people like George Kennan uncomfortable, right? Yeah. That if, if the Soviets are out there advocating for Israel, well, then you've got Americans saying, well, wait a minute, is that in our interest? Or at least they're using that as an argument against the Jewish
1: state. The anti-communist argument and the argument for containment in those years cut against the, the Zionist project and uh, the 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 british intelligence agencies and the foreign ministry the Pentagon, the cia uh say through, uh, they, this association of the zionists with the soviet union uh people are polite and they weren't going to talk about judeo bolshevism or echo nazi propaganda or anything like that but the, but this notion that uh that that the state of israel would be a kind of trojan horse for soviet influence in the middle east was um pervasive uh, in the British Foreign Office and in the State Department. Uh, So – and and that has been uh, in popular consciousness or perhaps even a policy world is forgotten.
0: Yeah, I mean there's a couple of points I want to tease out here that I think are really really very interesting that I don't think most people get. One is that Zionism was very consciously an anti-imperialist ideology – right because you had the the the, the area is that 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 the the area that is Palestine which includes Israel includes Gaza includes the West Bank includes Jordan this was under the Ottoman Empire for centuries and when the Ottoman Empire fell as a result of World War 1 you have the British Empire now the Zionists want the British out and they want to establish their own state in Palestine that's what they want to do they want an independent nation not part of any empire. So it was anti-imperialist. Zionists were also anti-racist as opposed to those Arab leaders who, and this is from your book, celebrated the supposed racial homogeneity of Arab societies. They were saying, no, we're going to have a nation here that is not racist because Arabs and Jews are going to live together if we can. And they do, by the way, 20% of Israel is Arab, Muslim, some other minorities. And by the way, the Arabs and Muslims have more rights in Israel than they do in any Arab or Muslim state in the world. Now they also had this, and then I'll let you get in. And that is, so if, if you're, if you're Russia back at that time, you don't know what we know now, which is the British Empire and the French Empire are going to wither away rather rapidly after World War II. You don't know that unless you're very smart and you think we want to diminish the British Empire. That's the, the British Empire is an enemy of the Soviet union and so we support the zionists the british are going to leave the middle east and that's only good for us let's do it that way and then you have the whole other part that all these arab countries have oil people thought hydrocarbons what a wonderful thing it'll bring us prosperity fossil fuels terrific that we need this in order to progress they were not wrong i would argue Uh, and that's another reason to be pro-arab and not pro-jewish and then of course you have the the UN coming in saying okay let's split the baby let's have two states well you talk about this we'll partition israel um leave jordan to, and that eastern palestine to be into not a palestinian state and a jewish state but a jewish state and an arab state cuz palestinian you could be palestinian jew or palestinian arab back in that time the, the term Palestinian had not been appropriated. Palestine Arabs was the term. It was Palestine Arabs. Okay, so let's and then the, the Palestine Arabs said, we don't accept a partition. The Jews said, we'll take it. We'll take whatever we can get. And that and that was the first time a two-state solution was offered and the first time a two-state solution was turned down by the Palestinian Arabs now who call themselves the Palestinians. So pick up on any of that that you think I'm wrong on or that you want to expand on.
1: No, I agree with what, what both of you have said. uh, uh the, um, w- one thing that I, that I found, uh, uh, interesting in writing the book was to think about, uh, the, the spring and summer and fall of 47 and, and, and then 48. These were the, the crucial months of the beginning of the Cold War and the policy of containment. Uh, Marshall gives the Marshall Plan speech at Harvard. Truman gives the Truman Doctrine speech in March of 47, uh, the UN special session takes place in May of forty-seven. So uh, the main event of those months, and and uh, and the major preoccupation of George Marshall and George Kennan, Robert Lovett, James Forrestal, and Harry Truman, was establishing the policy of containment. Yeah. And. Uh, uh, Containment uh, of the Soviet uh, yeah. Union, obviously, but in case people. So the don't Zionist realize, yeah. project was a sideshow, right? Uh, emotionally, it wasn't a sideshow uh, because of the Holocaust and the memories and popular sentiment. But in terms of the global strategy of the United States and Soviet Union, the Cold War was the main event, and uh, the and and so the question for Marshall and Lovett and Kennan and the military was: uh, How does the Zionist project affect? The policy of containment. Uh, that was the key question, and uh, and they uh, they concluded that it was a disaster for the policy of containment. Uh, that it would benefit the Soviet Union, and as you indicated, you both indicated that uh, it would uh, undermine Western access to Arab oil because it would infuriate the Arabs, and uh, and uh, if. Marshall's Marshall plan was going to be successful, Western Europe needed the oil to recover economically. If it couldn't recover economically, the French and Italian communist parties could win elections and there would be the end of of, of the Atlantic Alliance and uh, we would lose the Cold War <laughs> very quickly. And they were making those arguments then in the summer and the fall of 47 and, and winter of 48. and they And they never they were convinced they were right and they were, they were convinced that the state of israel would be would and kennan with his eloquence made made the case that this would undermine american national
2: security interests let me pick up on that because i think that 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 all comes through very clearly in your book and then comes this protagonist if you will an unlikely figure named clark uh, clifford who turns all of this on its head and is I think able to successfully convince President Truman that that is incorrect. How does he do it? I mean, this is the one thing that I'm I'm not sure I understand as I read the book. How does this one man become so influential? A lot of people talked about I forget Truman's uh, uh, Jewish business partner and how he was instrumental in changing the president. Eddie mind. Jacobson. That's right. That's right. Uh, but we don't hear about him a whole lot in the book, if at all. We hear about this other man who is an advisor to the president and he somehow is able to uh outfox outsmart some of the greatest minds out of the state department out of our so-called deep state
1: first of all uh, a comment about about truman and religion i think of harry truman as part of a generation of protestants uh uh in the mold of franklin roosevelt and winston churchill who for whom uh christianity was the fortunate successor of Judaism, and that there was a a positive connection between Christianity and Judaism, uh, that they rejected the centrality of the deicide accusations, and I think that was emotionally important for all three of them. So the Eddie Jacobson story and and Truman's his understanding of the place of Judaism in Western history and the Jews in Western history that's important, but Harry Truman was the president of the United States. And as the president of the United States, his primary responsibility was to protect the national security of the United States of America. And no amount of emotional arguments about the consequences of the Holocaust would be able to convince the president of the United States that he support that he sh- he or she should support a Jewish state if it was going to damage the defense of this country. And Clark Clifford um, is really the quintessential Washington lawyer. I mean, he, Mr. President, Mr. President, the Arabs can't make a cent if the oil stays in the ground. They've got to sell it to somebody. And in 1947 or 48, if you look around the world, the industrialized countries that need the oil are in Western Europe and the United States. So their threats to boycott us are hollow. Point one. And point two, Mr. President, I know a thing or two about the Zionists. They're not communists. And so this country, this new Jewish state, it's going to be an asset to American national security. It's not going to be a threat. And uh, I think at the time that Clark Clifford did that, he was in his early 40s. And there he is in the, in the Oval Office, and there's George Marshall, the the single most famous American in the United States after the President of the United States, the former five-star general, and Kennan, the most brilliant diplomat, you know, and he's up against them. And it, it was a remarkable performance, and Truman was listening. Now, you know, so I think uh, – uh, but he, the president needed those arguments. The emotional arguments were not going to be enough. He right. needed the strategic
0: arguments. Interests as well as values always, well, plays a role and usually trumps. One thing I, that you probably know that I, I wonder about, 1945 to 1949, the third period you're talking about, how much was really known and understood at that point about the Holocaust? Because during the war – very few people understood about the Holocaust. And, of course, there are, you know, you've, uh, criticisms of the New York Times and others, references to what became known as the Holocaust, you know, were on page A16 kind of thing. They were – this was not uh, – and Truman, of course, has been – Truman, uh, Roosevelt has been criticized uh, for not doing more to, you know, bomb the train lines to Auschwitz and all of that. But how
1: much was known at that point? It's not what we know now. Well, clearly. by 1944, a lot was known. And uh, uh, Robert Wagner and uh, by the public or by the uh, il- the intellectual by the, and government elites uh, by the reading public oh. by the, the uh, I don't you know I don't know the percentages of you know but the but uh, Senator Robert Wagner Senator Robert Taft Congressman Emanuel Sellers uh,
0: uh,
1: uh, uh, there were resolutions in the co- in the House and the Senate uh in support of establishing a jewish state uh in support of um war crimes uh uh investigations uh the, the news of the holocaust was, by 1944 was was not a secret it, it, it was it was pretty well known and then after the war there were the displaced persons camps. And, and not uh, a lot
0: of sympathy for the displaced persons. After all, that's what exodus was all about. They're not going to let them go and 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 leave the displaced persons camp and go to Palestine
1: and join the the Jewish community there. Well, David Nassau, a historian at the City University of New York Graduate Center in New York, has written a superb book called The Last Million, which is about uh, the displaced persons and American politics. And uh, some of the Southern senators uh, uh we're very eager uh to have uh the east europeans who had uh, uh who were anti-communist some of whom would collaborate with the nazis but they were not eager to have jewish refugees come to the united states it's a very unpleasant story but the the refugee issue yeah. was an emotional issue in in the public sphere and truman supported uh allowing 100,000 uh, refugees to come to uh, uh, pre-state Palestine. And that infuriated the British. So, that, so it, within the State Department, um, we're, we're, we just fought the war, and we won the war with the British. And they're our friends. We know them personally. Uh, uh, and the cornerstone of our policy, Marshall said, in the Middle East is to preserve the British position in the Middle East. Well, if you preserve the British position in the Middle East, the argument was that's incompatible with the, with the Jewish state, and they were they were persistent and consistent they, uh, up up to the establishment of the state. They, they, they the State Department and the Pentagon, even more so, did not change uh, their policy. But the the memories of uh, the very fresh memories of the Holocaust uh, were were certainly a factor. Uh, there were conservatives. Uh, then most famously Senator Robert Taft who supported the Zionist project, but the greatest passion in support of it uh, came from the democratic party. It came from liberals and leftists. And, uh, the book addresses some of the very left leaning press in New York PM, a kind of popular front newspaper, the, the then very left liberal New York post, uh, the the left wing flagship, left liberal flagship, the Nation, they were all, and under Henry Wallace, the New Republic, they were all much more supportive of the Zionist project than the New York Times, uh, which still had that sort of uh, East New York East Side uh, somewhat stuffy German Jewish uh, nervousness about these Eastern European. Polish Zionists who… Uh, yeah,
0: uh, never qu- quite uh, moved on entirely from that, one might argue. Um, <laughs> we'll get back to the nation and the left and, and how they and how they kind of turned so far from the, the other direction. But first, you, you mentioned a very interesting character I wanted you to talk a little bit more about, and that's Haj Amin al-Husseini. mm mm-hmm who he was, what he did during the war, his influence on then and now on Palestinian society. Talk, just give us a little bit of a – and John, you can weigh
1: in on this too. Well, Hajim al-Husseini was appointed to be the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem in the 1920s. Appointed by the British. By the British British, uh, uh, (laughs) officials, I forget which, the name of the British official who did that. And then he was um, important in leading the Arab revolt of 1936 to 39, and – uh, in which there were many moderate Palestinians uh, who were killed as well as Jews. And the British were then chasing him. And he escaped, went to Iraq, uh, where he participated in a pro-Nazi coup in 1941. Then the British invaded in 41 and overthrew that government. Then he wound up in Berlin in November of 1941, and had a famous meeting with Hitler, um, and from 41 to 45, he, he delivered speeches that were on Nazi Germany's Arabic language radio broadcasts uh, to the Middle East and, uh, argued that, uh, his interpretation of Islam, which today we would call Islamism, uh, meant that, uh, a Jewish state in Palestine was only the last chapter in many centuries of Jewish attacks on Islam. And so he gave the opposition to the Zionist Project a religious uh, pedigree. Mm. He was not a decision-maker in the Nazi regime. He was a man on the run, and he was lucky to uh, have a roof over his head. They paid him handsomely. Uh, uh, he had an entourage, but he was not a decision-maker. So uh, um, he he did try to convince Himmler uh, uh, not to allow any Jews to escape from Europe to go to Palestine during the Holocaust. But there were Nazi propagandists who were, after the war, convicted of uh, war crimes for incitement to uh, genocide, and he certainly could have been indicted. The French military arrested him, uh, captured him in May of '45, and then he spent a year of house arrest near Paris. And I, as a historian of Germany, I have not worked uh, previously uh, in French archives, but I had a wonderful Time working in the National Archives in Pierre and the diplomatic archives in La Corneuve, and the story of the French Foreign Ministry's relationship with Husseini in 45-46 is part of the book because he the French government could have sent him either to Nuremberg or to the or to Britain, where the Britain British wanted to just put him on some island someplace uh but instead, uh, the French diplomats understood that getting on his good side would be good for preserving French colonial or french post colonial influence in the North Africa and the Middle east. The took the main decisions to go to war in nineteen forty eight and reject the u n partition resolution. The Palestinian intellectuals and government have never really come to terms with the fact that. This leading figure of Palestinian nationalism was a collaborator with Nazi Germany, and an important collaborator. He was not. There's no. It's not no point in exaggerating his role. Uh, uh, He was not a major decision maker in the Nazi regime, but but uh, the evidence is conclusive, and he didn't do it just out of opportunism. He did it on a basis of genuine conviction.
2: Correct, and you you could. I mean, I would say that 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 was. One of the more fascinating episodes in the book is seeing this Palestinian leader. Of course, we're all familiar with Hajime al-Husseini, but sort of seeing uh, the role that he played, uh, even after the disaster that, you know, it becomes clear to everybody. Um, I found it fascinating to see how the French basically looked the other way and enabled him to abscond to Egypt, where he then, uh, I suppose, led the movement from there. Uh, Maybe talk just a little bit about that because that was a really interesting episode. When he arrived
1: in Egypt, uh, Hassan al-Banna, the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, came to the French embassy in Cairo. And uh, you may recall uh, uh, his conversation with the French diplomats in which he was effusive in his gratitude to the French government uh, for making it possible for Husseini uh, to to come and uh, I, the book is not about hypotheticals on the whole, but I do I do go out on a limb and I don't think it's a huge limb in saying that the the failure to indict this man and put him on trial in 1946 was really a huge lost opportunity because the point was not to execute him or uh, you know but but to damage his political career so that he couldn't that he was damaged goods and he couldn't become a major political figure.
2: One can only imagine what Palestinian nationalism or Arab nationalism might have looked like had he been brought to justice. Well, the whole – the Palestinian leadership
1: would have had to come to terms with the fact that, uh, that, some of, that some of their leading figures had collaborated with this incredibly evil regime. And yet, he was able to revive his political career without any reckoning with his own past. Just as an aside, uh, I, I've written about the dark side of post-war West German and East German history as well, and there were no no shortage of scoundrels uh, who uh, had been officials in the Nazi regime, and then in nineteen some time between nineteen forty five and nineteen forty nine, they discovered the, the the delights of democracy and human rights, right? And uh, some of them had political careers, so there was a lot of cynicism, but. If you wanted a political career in West Germany, you could not in public talk about how marvelous Hitler was or that the Holocaust didn't happen. If you did that, you were finished, right?
0: But that raises this question, but you could in the Arab world. Would you say, in fact, that anti-Semitism at the end of World War II – was worse in the Arab world. And, and and you're, and you're of course, you've written a whole book about the broadcasting of Nazi propaganda in the Arab world throughout World War II, Hussein, uh, Haj Amin Hosseini played a role in that. Um, since there was no denazification, no reckoning, was anti-Semitism worse and, in fact, also had a European – there's a difference between Muslim anti-Semitism or there had been historically in European anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. interesting differences, but now you had a kind of a melding of the two post-World War II. And I think this is something that Bernard Lewis has spoken about, but give
1: me your impression of that. Well, Bernard Lewis had a, an excellent chapter in Semites and Anti-Semites in 1986, or, and, uh, and in which he, he broached this subject. Yeah. And, uh the last 30 years, uh, Matthias Kunzel and – But cut to the chase. Is, it, is anti-Semitism worse after World War II in the Arab, the Arab world? world the, not listen, the, uh, in the Arab countries, there are political leaders who, uh, unlike political leaders in other parts of the world, uh, actually say positive things about Hitler. And that is a very unique – in global politics, a very distinctive phenomenon, uh, so the the after effects of, of Nazism uh, do do live on and 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 liberals in New York and in Washington
2: and in Paris and London uh, viewed things that way
1: that 's how they saw things
2: I would just say that you know fast forward to today fast forward to the modern era, you continue to see cartoons in Arab newspapers invoking The same sort of images of Nazi propaganda from that era. Um, Mein Kampf still enjoys popular reading in the Arab world. Um, And so you could actually even argue that Arab anti-Semitism grew uh, during that time and and maybe never stopped. There's an
1: anecdote that I've heard again and again, Uh, Cliff, maybe, were you a journalist in the Middle East at all? Well, parts of the Middle East. Okay. I was in Iran for the revolution. But you don't for have a example. German accent. So I don't have a German no. accent. No. So uh, the uh, over the years, I've spoken to German journalists and German diplomats uh, who have been in the Middle East, and uh, I've heard this anecdote now a, a number of different times when people go to the region and the conversation partner hears the German accent. And then there's some favorable comment about Hitler. And this is in the 1960s and 70s. So these Germans are horrified, you know, no, bad (laughs) Hitler, very bad, you know. Uh, And uh, uh, if I'd heard it just once, that would be one thing, but it's, but it's, it was actually a common experience. And uh, so the Germans have this tradition of coming to terms with the past, uh, which is partly successful and partly not, but uh, it, there's uh, The government attempts to tell the truth. Whatever that reckoning with that legacy has not yet uh, uh, been a major factor of, of Palestinian. And Palestine. let's uh, and let's also just recall that after World War II, starting in 1945,
0: going up into the into the 1950s, the Jewish communities were essentially expelled from every Arab state. Now, the, the largest Jewish community probably. Was in Baghdad, maybe a third, maybe a quarter of the population of Baghdad was Jewish. After it was a pogrom and they were all, they all had to leave with the, the shirts in their backs. Jews from Cairo, Jews from Alexandria, Jews from Libya, Tripoli, they had been there. They they were expelled from all of these, which also tells you, they weren't, again, they weren't put in gas chambers, but they, but they did get rid of their Jewish communities, which by the way, ironically... Ended up supporting the Jewish state because a lot of those who were expelled, where the hell are they going to go? They were going to go to Israel, and Israel's population now more than half are descended from what we called Sephardic or Mizrahi Jews, Jews from the from the North Africa, Middle East, and Muslim world. That's where they that's where they are. They're in Israel, even though the most of the most prominent figures that people think about are Ashkenazi or European Jews. It's a very important part. But, and feel free to comment on that, but I do want to get. My
1: impression is the FDD, uh, uh, and the two of you know a lot about the United Nations. And, uh, the, uh, of course, one of the very interesting things is that, quote, the refugee issue, uh, in the United Nations, uh, is uh, almost never applied to the almost what's between, what is it, 700,000 to a million Jews who were uh, forced to leave, uh, North Africa and and the Middle East, uh, uh, during and after the war of 1948. No, that's not talked about. It's only the Palestinian refugees that they remain in
0: what are called refugee camps, even if they're in places that are, are are part of Palestine. Um, but that's right. That's totally hidden. Of course, the the Jewish refugees became citizens. Their kids became citizens, speak Hebrew, all of the, uh, all of the above.
2: Before we lose the thread on, on Hajimeen al-Husseini, um, Just getting back so we look at a foreign ministry that's willing to let him escape. And then there's this other part of the book, which I found fascinating, and this was actually probably the greatest surprise out of everything that I read, that it's the French interior ministry that is probably the greatest advocate for these boats that are bringing Jews to what was then Palestine. You have this incredible division within the French government. Really, I mean, jarring. Um, and and I don't know if most people understand this—the role that the French played.
1: Historians of the French Resistance have written realistically about the French Resistance, and there was a lot of the French Resistance that w- w- was not particularly focused on the question of antisemitism or the Holocaust. But there was part of the French Resistance that was. Leon Blum was was the uh, prime minister, uh, uh, the president of the prime minister of France in the 1930s, a uh, leader of the Popular Front and Jewish of and Jewish, yes he survived uh, uh, German captivity, uh, but, uh, uh, he was an old man after the war and great health, but, uh, Edward Dupre and Jules Mock, uh, were the socialist, uh, uh, ministers of the interior ministry and the transport ministry. And, uh, they were, uh, in, they dealt with things like visas, ports, borders, police, and, uh, they were working with, Um, The Mossad uh, in uh, assisting, uh, quote, clandestine uh, Jewish immigration from Europe to Palestine. Uh, And they did this, a continuation of anti-fascism. I can get behind that Antifa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I don't know if Anti if the Antifa groups today uh, have, have a clue about all that, but uh um Is there a lead just,
0: historian in Antifa? Uh, I haven't uh, made his acquaintance or yeah, read about him yeah, lately, I Yeah, d I you know, I don't know. I don't but know. The,
1: but the 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 British Foreign Ministry and the French Foreign Ministry were extremely frustrated with the with the with, uh, Edward Dupree and Jules Moch and uh they uh made it possible for Marseille and other southern ports in Europe, uh, to facilitate, uh, uh, the very, uh, Jewish immigration to Palestine that the British, re- British Navy, uh, was doing its best uh, to prevent. Uh, and, uh, I, I have not written about, uh, France in the 1950s and 60s, but one implication of the book is, how Israel's most important ally emerged after 1948. And there's considerable amount of romanticism in the United States about how important the United States was for the survival of the state of Israel in the 1950s and 60s. And in fact, the state that did the most uh, uh to see to it that the state of Israel was survived uh in the 1950s and uh up to the 1967 war was France
2: undeniably mystere jets the nuclear program i mean you could there's a pretty long list of of how the french yes
1: and 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 again that goes back to an argument in the book about the role of anti-colonialism and anti-fascism and the memories of the second world war and the view of zionism as a uh as a movement uh, against uh uh racism and and a recognition that uh that uh, the Zionist argument about the need for a state in view of the existence of anti-Semitism ma- made, made sense. Uh, so the, 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 the ideas of Marshall and Kennan and Lovett and Forrestal and the skepticism of the Jewish state, that persisted in the United States State Department, uh, well into the 1950s and 60s. And it didn't, you know, the two of you, the two of you know, know much more about this. Uh The United States didn't really become a consequential ally. Uh, That is, by that I mean someone you can turn to when it's a matter of life and death. Uh, Really, until 1969
0: or 70. Uh, The 67 war was probably, I think, was was pivotal in that regard and makes the case that Israel didn't become powerful because of U.S. support. U.S. support came about because Israel became powerful.
1: Well, it gets back to the, the point that we were discussing earlier about Clark Clifford. Uh, Mr. President, the state of Israel is going to be an asset liability. Well, that argument didn't fly for decades in the State Department and the Pentagon. But when the Israeli Air Force destroyed uh, the Soviet planes on the ground uh, in the first days of the Six-Day War, then the Pentagon became interested. And uh, and it was at that point that Nixon and Kissinger uh, made the case to the hard men in the Pentagon that this state is going to be an asset because uh, now the anti-communist argument is no longer an anti-Zionist argument. And, but that didn't happen until very late.
0: And American weapons are going to show, be shown to be better than Russian weapons. American planes are better than Russian planes. So the American power – this was an important because – you, because you have weapons, they need to be tested. By the way, this is a digression, but an important one. American weapons are being tested against Russian weapons right now in Ukraine. And guess what? American weapons are better than Russian weapons. That – People people in military circles are recognizing that and saying, wow, I didn't understand that. If you're an Indian general, you suddenly say, do I want Russian weapons or do I want American weapons? Hi, Mars. Don't I want those? Right? I mean, we have time for only like two more subjects. So one of them has to be Israel's war of independence and what happened there. And by the way, there you have the whole issue of the U.S. and U.N. This gets back to
1: what you're saying or bol- bolsters it, the arms embargo. Well. This underscores a point about Jewish political weakness in the United States, uh, a very important element of anti-Semitism, uh, in the last 70 years concerns the huge, po- the supposed huge power of the Jewish lobby and the control of the Jews over American foreign policy. Uh, and it was always a canard, uh, a lie, uh, uh, jews of course uh, um, are active in in a democracy but the uh the, the synagogues the jewish organizations uh the non-jewish supporters of, of the state of israel in 1947 48 had wrote letters had demonstrations wrote articles made speeches in the congress lift the arms embargo you know Uh, We shouldn't do what we did during the Spanish Civil War when we left the Republicans uh, to uh, uh, the mercies of of Franco. Uh, 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 Now lift the arms embargo. By the way, it was theoretically
0: an arms embargo against everyone, but it was easier for the Arabs to break, The Arabs
1: had states. Yeah. The Arabs had states. They had ports. They had airports. They were were already states. And uh, no, they would not lift the arms embargo. And so when push came to shove and – the the war was on, and then when 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 the Arab states invaded in May of forty eight, and things were dire, uh, where were the weapons going to come from? Uh, they didn't come from the United. Yes, there were there were some Jewish veterans who flew some airplanes, and and and, and, and there are books about that, and, and, and a movie and, and or two. Yes, movie or do, two, yeah. yes. But but for David Ben Gurion, uh, uh, the the first prime minister, uh, there was the Czech arms deliveries. That he th- he thought made made the difference, so it's 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 um, an irony, but uh, that's where they came from.
2: Look, I'll, I'll ask you, my, my last question. You talk a lot about in the book about members of Congress that made a big difference. Robert Wagner from New York being one of them, Emanuel Seller being another, Estes Kefauver, Tennessee, I think, played a role. Uh, Alexander Wiley from Wisconsin. Um, I think all Democrats, almost all Democrats, what was it that you think compelled these people to advocate for this very weak and rather lonely new country? Well, the Jewish members of Congress
1: felt a particular bond, uh, with the Jews and, uh, the core argument came from Thucydides' Peloponnesian War. That is, the strong will do what they can and the weak must, must suffer what they must. And what, what could more dramatically demonstrate Thucydides' insight than the Holocaust? So, in order to see that that didn't happen again, the Jews needed a state, uh, and all the elements thereof, armed forces, especially. Uh, so never again, right? Uh, and then Wagner, who was Protestant and then converted to Catholicism uh, in the late 30s, early 40s, uh, and, and others were in the uh, sort of Christian Zionists. And, uh, and, and they, they saw the Holocaust as a, a disgraceful episode in the history of Christianity. And they saw the opposition in the Arab world to the establishment of a Jewish state as a form of religious intolerance and bigotry. They, they, they didn't view it as anti-colonialism or uh, – uh, some search for justice. They, they said we've seen this before. Right? It has a different flavor. It's a different cultural origins. But, it's moral clarity. Yeah, yeah. Fr- Friedrich Kerchway, the editor of the Nation, was uh, uh, was engaged in, in 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 the same way. Uh, the they did not. They did not amalgamate all Arabs to Nazis. They didn't. They didn't do that. Nobody did that. They didn't say all the Arabs are anti-Semites. They didn't say that. But they said the leaders of the Arab higher committee in the United Nations and Husseini and the people around him, they collaborated with the Nazis and we just fought a war to defeat Nazi Germany. So, uh, that was the, that was the mood of 1945 to 49. And, uh, a sense that the French socialists had too, that the Zionists, uh, were, Generally, a part of a democratic. They came out of a democratic tradition of uh, of socialism. Some of them, uh, but there were other supporters of the Zionists who didn't have a socialist bone in their body. And but they were Democrats, a small D. Uh, all, all those all those things uh, were at play. So, last subject for this conversation:
0: Israel today accepted and recognized by several of its Middle Eastern. Neighbors, the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, the Saudis are by no means hostile, but existentially threatened by one, the Islamic Republic of Iran, which is Islamist, as much so as the Muslim Brotherhood, to which you, re- you, you referenced earlier. And today, I would say the UN has become de facto an enemy of Israel, which is ironic and sad. Um, let, me, let, let either or both of you reflect on those comments if you want.
1: Well, I haven't had a chance to say something that I wanted to say about David Ben-Gurion and Moshe Sharett. Uh I think in re- in writing the book, I came to appreciate their political greatness, uh, that uh, uh, Ben-Gurion uh, is a political leader who understood that there was this very short window of opportunity of 47, 48, when Stalin, like, I don't know, may he... It made a blunder uh, and was supporting the Zionist project, but this wasn't going to last. And so there were people urging Ben Gurion. Well, maybe now is not the time to to establish the state. And Ben Gurion insisted, No, we're going to do it now. And uh, his decisiveness, uh, Sherrod's diplomacy, and uh, I I think that that's important for uh, for p- people uh, to uh, remember. And the 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 fundamental Zionist argument of 1940 of of the 1940s was one that that emerges strikes a nerve with me and, and the book was uh, goes back as I said to Thucydides that it's a dangerous world and a dangerous world for Jews and anti-Semitism uh, perhaps had it burned itself out in Christianity but it hadn't burned itself out uh, in Islam uh, and Islamism it It hadn't burned itself up, it was there, so uh there was nothing theoretical or hypothetical about what would happen if things if the worst happened uh Israel needed to defend itself and so that is the it's not the same but but it, the Hitler threatened and he did what he said he was going to do. And uh, the Ayatollah is threatened, and there's every reason to think that if they could, they would. If do they, if what they can, th- they will. If they can, they will. The uh, I think in his bones, my former student, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, understands that's the case. And uh, I hope, I think, I hope that President Biden understands that's the case. I think he does. We'll see.
2: And Jonathan, you're a final... Uh I think I think that's a great way to end it. I just have one very simple question. What's your next book? I'm writing a collection of my essays
1: uh called uh Three Faces of Antisemitism, uh right, left and Islamist. These are old essays and uh updated and revised. There's not a uh there's not a book that deals with all three forms of antisemitism between two covers. Uh there's edited collections that do that, but I've written about all three kinds. That's what I'm doing. Well, my final point is that
0: anti-Semitism has not yet burned itself out at the United Nations. Like nor in Iran. No, nor, it's certainly not in Iran. Much more in this book. We only got to, as I said, we cherry-picked, but talked about a lot of interesting subjects. It's a book that you should read, Israel's moment international support for and opposition to establishing the Jewish state. Nineteen forty five to nineteen forty nine. Professor Herf, thanks so much for coming to be with us today. Thank you very much. And besides the two of us, we're glad we've had all of you here for this conversation as well. Here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.